Welcome to the FDD Events Podcast. I'm Cliff Mate, founder and president of FDD. I'm pleased to share with you the following conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss out on future FDD events. Good morning. It's Monday, January 29th. The war in the Middle East is 115 days old. I'm Jonathan Shanzer, Senior Vice President for Research at Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and welcome back to the FDD Morning Brief. This weekend was long on eye-popping headlines and short on sleep. People keep telling me that this pace can't continue. I'm pretty sure those people don't study the Middle East, but we do, and we do our best to try to make sense of it for you three times a week here at the FDD Morning Brief. So thank you for joining. In a few minutes, we'll be joined by Hadil Owais. Hadil is a writer and journalist who was arrested by the Assad regime in Syria. Today, she's with a terrific NGO called the Philos Project, which promotes positive Christian engagement in the Middle East. But before we talk to Hadil, let's talk about what happened at The Hague last week. We all know the basics. South Africa filed a case accusing Israel of genocide at the International Court of Justice. This was an episode George Orwell might have conjured. Israel was hauled before the court after responding to a mass slaughter by a terrorist group that is unabashedly genocidal. I mean, Hamas literally says it wants to destroy the entire state of Israel. Folks are asking who won this case. The answer? Nobody. True, the court stopped short of telling Israel to end the war. This granted Israel a measure of legitimacy to keep fighting in Gaza. However, the court also declared it would not dismiss the matter of genocide. It's still an open question as far as the court is concerned. It's not an open question for Germany, which slammed the absurdity of the charge, and the Germans know a little bit about genocide. The lone Ugandan judge that rejected the charge also knows genocide, having witnessed horrific crimes in Africa over the years. The U.S., the U.K., and a host of other Western countries also joined this chorus. And yet, somehow, they are the minority. This is tyranny of the majority, and it is a core problem with the international system. The U.N. was created by the United States to preserve the world order we fought to create in World War II, but we've lost control of it. A few examples, UNRWA, the the UN agency dealing with the Palestinian refugee problem, allows its employees to moonlight as Hamas fighters. After learning that employees actually joined the attack of 10-7, the U.S. announced a halt to future funding to UNRWA. Germany, Japan, the U.K., Australia, Italy, Canada, Finland, the Netherlands all paused funding too. But will this pause be meaningful or was it just a PR move? Let's hope it spells the end of UNRWA both U.S. taxpayers and the Palestinian people deserve better. Meanwhile, the World Health Organization yawns at the exploitation of hospitals by Hamas. The ICJ targets the victims of slaughter, rape, and cruelty to children. And don't get me started about the way that China and Russia have co-opted the system. It is staggering. At FTD, we envision a different international system. This one is clearly not working, but fixing it won't be easy. Reforming Broken bureaucracies is a sure way to get gray hair. And I know a thing or two about gray hair. Maybe it's time for a League of Democracies. How about a multilateral organization that fights radical theocracies, rogue states, and terrorist groups rather than giving them a platform? If you like the sound of that, tune in at 2 p.m. tomorrow when FDD's Rich Goldberg and Hillel Neuer of UN Watch take on UNRWA 
and they take them to the woodshed known as the Foreign Affairs Committee of the House of Representatives. You've seen both of those gentlemen here on the morning brief. Neither are shy. It should be almost enjoyable. Tune in on the committee's website. Now for your headlines. Headline one, three American servicemen were killed in Jordan yesterday in a drone attack by an Iran-backed militia. These were not the first U.S. deaths in this war. An American contractor died of a heart attack in October during a militia drone strike in Iraq, and two Navy SEALs were pronounced dead after trying to halt an Iranian weapons smuggling operation off the coast of Somalia a few weeks ago. Iran never paid a price. And now, after more than 135 different attacks by Iranian proxies against Americans in Iraq and Syria since the war began, this was a direct hit. Oh, and in case you were wondering, there were roughly 90 Iran-sponsored attacks on U.S. service members even before the October 7th attacks. So now what? President Biden has vowed to respond. An American response is sorely needed, but not the kind of measured response that destroys a meaningless rocket storage facility. Iran's proxies need to pay a steep price. Heck, Iran needs to pay a price. Your move, Mr. President. We're all watching. Headline two. The families of the Israeli hostages have been protesting at the Kerem Shalom crossing between Gaza and Israel with the aim of blocking aid from entering the Gaza Strip. Here's what we know. The families believe that Hamas should be releasing hostages in exchange for Israel allowing assistance to come in. I, for one, fully buy that logic, but not everyone does. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu actually disagrees, and he's called upon the families to stand down. I don't think that's happening anytime soon. So now what? It's not clear how this is going to play out, but I do think that the prime minister should embrace the families of hostages. Rather than declaring the crossing to be an off-limits military zone, he should tell the Qataris and the Egyptians and the White House, for that matter, that he cannot stop the families from protesting in a democracy and that they have every right to question why Israel should acquiesce to the needs of others when its own needs are not being addressed. At minimum, that could push the negotiations in another direction because I don't like where the current talks are headed. And headline three, video of Gazans calling for Hamas to, re to release the hostages and end the war has been making the rounds on Israeli television. Israelis hope this is a game changer. And I don't know if it is. It's certainly understandable for Israelis to hope that the people of Gaza see the folly of Hamas's war. And they hope that this is the beginning of a process through which Gazans retake control of their territory and turn against the ideology behind the 10-7 massacre. But can the Hamas ideology be defeated? Sadly, I don't think so. The toxic cocktail of jihadism and violent nationalism is a powerful one. The idea of Hamas is not going anywhere, but there is an opportunity to trounce the group in Gaza and to bring in different leaders to run the place. This is uh, what all that day after talk is about. And the Israelis have started doing some direct outreach in the Arab world to build a future that keeps the radicals at bay. The dialogue is progressing, so good luck to all of them. It's not impossible, but it won't be easy. Okay, moving on, I'm pleased to introduce to you Hadil Oase. Hadil is a journalist now with the Philos Project, and I'm thrilled to have her join the morning brief today. Welcome, Hadil. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So I want to start with just asking you a, uh, a question about uh, what happened yesterday in Jordan. 
Um, obviously, the U.S. is set to respond, and um, I think it's long overdue, as discussed. But what do you think the future of these Iran-backed militias will be in the wake of this incident? Yes, uh, Jonathan, it all depends on the Biden administration uh, response. If uh, we see a weak response, just defensive uh, attacks, uh, just weak attacks on the militias, uh, then the fate of uh, these attacks, uh, these militias is the survival, not only survival, but also emerging as victorious from the current uh, escalation in the Middle East, because uh, all they do is testing uh, what's happening, the politics in Washington, watching what happens, and then uh, the act depends on uh, what happens and what are the uh, decisions of uh, the administration. Uh, what we need to see is a strong response uh, on Iran this time. Iran is uh, the mastermind of everything uh, happening now in Iraq, Syria, on the borders, uh, Syrian and Jordanian borders, and uh, we need to see Iran feeling the pain from what's happening today. And we need, of course, a different political strategy, different political strategy when it comes to the U.S. relation with Iraq, because these militia, militias, they are in a way or another, they are tied to the Iraqi government. Actually, the Iraqi government itself uh, calls many of these militias that are targeting the U.S. as a part of the uh, Iraqi government, the Iraqi government that receives millions of dollars every every year from the U.S. as um, as security support. And unfortunately, I can say that the U.S. in some way is bankrolling these militias, these activities. So uh, we need to see a firm uh, and fundamental change in the U.S. Uh, policy uh, when it comes to its relation uh, with Iraq. And we, we need to see uh, strikes that hit these militias and hit their supporters, the Iranian supporters, something different than what we saw before. Because if we don't see that, uh, the escalation against the U.S. troops will uh, Will, will become more and more with time against the, the U.S. interest in the region and will end up seeing uh, the U.S. forced to leave, uh, to leave Iraq, forced to leave uh, Syria. It sounds like you're saying there's really a, a political, a financial, and a military response that's needed here, and I think I tend to agree. Um, let me shift gears for a second, talk about Syria. There was an attack this morning uh, in Syria carried out by Israel, at least reportedly, how do you see the Assad regime's decision to sit out this war? I mean, they are not the ones attacking. It's really the Iranian militias who are either there by invitation or maybe even not by invitation uh, inserted there by the regime uh, in Iran. So is this for Assad? Is this about survival? Is there friction between the Assad regime and the Islamic Republic in Iran? I've heard different things. What's your take? Yes, uh, the Assad regime uh, position uh, from what's happening today in Gaza is very interesting. I don't think there is uh, friction or divisions between the Assad regime and Iran because his survival is uh, is is tied to the Iranian regime, and he is one hundred percent counting on them to survive. But 
the Assad regime is uh, not happy with Hamas. Uh, we hear that from Assad himself last August when uh, he uh, he described Hamas as traitors, and he said that he betra- they they betrayed uh, Syria. Syria gave them the diplomatic support, hosted them in Damascus, uh, gave them uh, financial support, and then uh, at some point when the conflict in Syria turned into a civil war, uh, Hamas as the Sunni group. Uh, although it is tied closely uh, to Iran, they had to take a position and they started to support uh, Sunni Islamist rebels who fought Assad. And actually, the suburbs in, in uh, of Damascus, the Syrian capital, uh, were all uh, taken by rebel groups that Hamas aided and helped to uh, build tunnels all, all uh, around the Damascus, which uh, made these rebel groups uh, fight Assad and survive for years. So uh, Assad uh, did not want to uh, stand with Hamas, uh, obviously, in uh, in what's happening today, because uh, he saw Hamas as the traitors who aided his opposition, uh, but also because Syria is too weak now to act. It's too weak to do anything. Uh, but at the end of the day, Syria is a very... Uh, uh, important base today uh, for Iran-backed militias. Uh, They targeted the U.S. troops from Syria, and uh, some people say that the U.S. troops who were killed were uh, in Syria also, not in Jordan, uh, but uh, the militias who targeted uh, Jordan uh, are in Syria, and uh, this is dangerous enough uh, for us to be worried uh, from uh, the situation today in Syria that was also left without any political uh, resolution. We have to deal with Assad, we have to deal uh, to have a more coherent uh, strategy for the U.S. presence in Syria because uh, Syria, I would say, uh, more than Lebanon and Iraq is now uh, controlled by Iran because Assad is uh, very weak. Uh, he uh, does not have a, a strong opponents now uh, in the country, while in Iraq there are different parties. There are some parties who are against Iran-backed militias, the same situation in Lebanon. Uh, but uh, Syria is a safe haven now for Iran and its militias. It is, and I think it's probably only going to get worse. Um, but uh, okay, l- let me shift gears again. I want to ask you about the media coverage of this current war. I mean, I know you track uh, Arab language media closely, and obviously Hezbollah's Al Mayadeen and Qatar's Al Jazeera are really horrible in terms of their coverage. But what about the others? I mean, how do you think the media in the Arab world has fared during this conflict? Yes, um, aside from uh, Al Jazeera and uh, Al Mayadeen, um, we uh, can talk about uh, the other side of the game, uh, the networks that are uh, closer to Saudi Arabia, to UAE. And these networks, um, they have more balanced uh, <clears throat> Sorry, they have maybe more uh, balanced. <clears throat> I have to have to use some water. And. <laughs> um. I would say they have more balanced uh, voice. I was uh, happy to say uh, to see uh, the um, uh, the project, the interviews of Whispered in Gaza uh, for uh, CPC uh, Center for Peace Communication uh, displayed on Al Arabiya uh, Network. Uh, they are uh, trying to show the Arab audience voices from Gaza, voices for ordinary people who are uh, talking about their daily experience with Hamas, the corruption of. Hamas, how Hamas is putting them into 
this war, uh, where the first victims are civilians, civilians from both sides, the Israeli side and um, and uh, from Gaza. Uh, and to see something like this on Al Arabiya is uh, is great. Uh, but also on the other side, uh, there are a lot of uh, analysts in Arabic who spread hate speech, who spread uh, anti-Semitism on um, all sorts of Arabic networks. Then there are the uh, foreign, ser- uh, the Arabic service for foreign networks, like unfortunately BBC and even Al Hurra, uh, where also uh, they are giving a platform uh, for voices that are uh, spreading misinformation. Uh, so. Uh, there is all sorts of uh, voices in the Arabic media, but uh, what I think is more important today than the traditional networks is the social media, because in the Arab world, like here in the United States, uh, the younger generation, Generation Z and Generation Alpha, they are not taking their uh, news from traditional networks, not from Al Jazeera, not from Al Arabiya. Uh, they uh, watch more podcasts, they, they watch more social media interviews on uh, X, short videos uh, on Instagram and in this game um, I would say unfortunately uh, hate speech against the Jews, uh, misinformation about uh, what's happening today in Gaza, October 7th attacks uh, outnumbers or they are still stronger than the moderate voices uh, in social media and uh, it's very important to uh, to change to change that to uh, work on that because because when we uh, talk about Arabic-speaking uh, people, we are talking about almost half a billion people. And as you know, Jonathan, what happens in the Arab world uh, does not stay there because this is a, 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 a region that suffers from conflict. And every year, thousands and thousands of those Arabic-speaking people are immigrating to Europe, are immigrating to the United States. And this rhetoric that's spread on the Arabic media, that's fed into uh, uh, the brains of the new generation in the Arab world is coming now to the campuses in the West, uh, to the streets in the West. So this is very dangerous. And uh, this is why in the Philos project, we are now uh, working on our uh, uh, Arabic project. Uh, but I think, I still think that we need a lot of work in Arabic language to, uh, to have more balanced media. It's a great point about the way that ultimately that rhetoric and that hate seeps back into the West. That uh, what happens in the Middle East doesn't stay in the Middle East. I'll just briefly note: you mentioned Al Hora. For those unaware, this is a U.S.-funded television station. I'm not happy to hear that there's radical rhetoric going on there. You also mentioned CPC, the Center for Peace Communications. That's a terrific nonprofit run by Joseph Browdy, who's been doing some great work giving voice to the moderates of the region, those that hate Hamas and Hezbollah and others. Um, I got one last question for you, Hadil, before I let you go. Um, the UA and, uh, UAE and Bahrain are still uh, hanging in there with their alliance with Israel. The Saudis say they haven't given up on normalization either. How do you envision the future of the Abraham Accords when this conflict is done? 
I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic about the future of the Abrahamic Accord. Uh, things need to uh, calm down a little bit in the region, and eventually uh, we'll see uh, more countries uh, normalizing with Israel, because I think there is a strategic decision in countries like Saudi Arabia uh, to normalize with Israel, to push the region forward for uh, uh, more peace, uh, more collaboration between the successful, the stable countries countries in the region. Uh, but of course, things are uh, complicated now. Uh, I, I still hear very balanced statements from uh, the Saudis. And um, and by the way, you asked me before about Assad. As one of the reasons why Assad is not siding now uh, with Hamas, because he's trying to be in the middle between the Arab countries that are normalizing with Israel and uh, the the Iranian axis that he's uh, relying on uh, to, to survive. So uh, even uh, regimes like the Assad regime, I, I believe eventually in the future, uh, we'll see them uh, thinking of uh, joining uh, this group of uh, moderate countries that are uh, looking forward for peace in the region. Uh, so um, I, I'm optimistic, but of course, uh, things are very complicated now. The uh, Arab uh, Arab governments are under uh, tremendous pressure uh, from uh, the population. And it all goes back to what we were talking about, the media, the messaging, the rhetoric, uh, there should be work on the basis, uh, the people, especially the younger generation. Uh, so uh, we have uh, real peace, coherent peace. And when uh, countries, when governments uh, join the Abrahamic Accord, uh, we have also uh, people who uh, who interact with uh, this these uh, peace agreements and be active in pushing uh, the region forward for uh, more peace position uh, i hear from uh, people from countries like iraq lebanon governments that are very far from uh, thinking of peace with israel uh, many people in these countries are want peace with israel these countries now in yemen in iraq in lebanon they are seeing themselves dragged into a big conflict that's taking place in the region and they're not happy with that those people don't think that the Palestinian issue is their central issue like uh, the Iranian regime uh, like to portray things in the Middle East they think that they're suffering the uh, deteriorating economic situation in Lebanon the instability in Iraq uh, the chaos in Yemen is their central uh, issue and uh, we need to uh, encourage these voices uh, more so uh, all in all, I'm optimistic. Well, uh, I'll take the optimism. Uh, and I will say, though, that the Iranians continue to fight Israel and the United States to the last Palestinian, the last Lebanese, the last Iraqi, the last Syrian, the last Yemeni. It's uh, it's obviously it's terrible for the region. But I am thrilled to hear that you still see room for optimism right now. Um, thank you, Hadil, for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. Okay, here's what we're tracking at FTD today. FTD senior fellow David Daoud spent the weekend tracking Hezbollah's attacks on Israel from the north. David is a fluent Arabic speaker. He recently joined or rejoined X, and he's got some incredible insights into Hezbollah's messaging on the battlefield and in the media. I encourage you all to give him a follow at David A. Daoud, D-A-O-U-D. 
Over at FTD's Long War Journal, Bill Roggio and Joe Trusman continue to track the Houthi attacks on commercial vessels and U.S. warships. There were numerous incidents over the weekend, including an anti-ship ballistic missile attack against a cargo ship carrying a flammable liquid hydrogen mixture. That does not sound safe. And finally, experts from FDD's Iran program are digging into a new UN report showing a sharp spike in the execution of political prisoners in Iran. More than 50 reported alone this month. This comes amidst an increase in forced confessions, unfair trials, and a total lack of due process. Perhaps 2024 can be the year that Washington stops providing sanctions relief to the regime and instead starts backing the Iranian people. They, of course, remain the best chance for a free, democratic, and prosperous Iran, not to mention a peaceful Middle East. Okay, that's it for today's show. Read our expert analysis on our website, fdd.org. Read our quick takes on X at FDD and support our work with a tax-deductible donation at fdd.org slash invest. Thank you for joining us today. I'll see you right and early on Wednesday for another episode of the FDD Morning Brief. My special guest will be FDD's CEO, Mark Dubowitz. He's been sanctioned by the countries of Iran and Russia. We're going to talk about how we should retool our policies in the Middle East. You don't want to miss this one, folks. Until then, I'm Jonathan Shanzer signing off for FDD. 